Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is brought to you by run for prs Coaching. run for prs Coaching helps runners of all abilities discover their inner strength and potential. They understand how difficult it can be to juggle training, family, career, and other pursuits, and they are excited to help support you in your athletic journey while pushing you to new heights. Run for PR's coaches work with athletes from all over the world through their online coaching platform, and it allows them to schedule, review your runs, communicate feedback, and most importantly, hold you accountable. All their coaches are Boston qualifiers with years of coaching experience, and you can learn more at run4prs.co. That's run, the number four, prs.co, or on Instagram, at run4prs. And if you basically let them know that you heard about it through the Rambling Runner podcast, once you fill out their online questionnaire, it helps out the show. So I'd appreciate it if you did that. So today's show is with Brian Reynolds, and this man is is just simply extraordinary. There really is no other word for it. So he he is the world record holder for a bilateral amputee below the knee. So his PR is just a shade over three hours. And recently, at the Chicago Marathon, he was pushing super hard to break that three-hour mark. He already is a world record holder, but that's not stopping him from trying to reach for new goals. He pushed so darn hard for this sub-three-hour marathon goal. He got a lot of publicity. You may have seen it. He was in Runner's World. He was in the Daily News. He was in just, shoot, a lot of online and print publications. And he was on pace. He was killing it. You're going to hear in this podcast. And then disaster struck at mile 22. Uh, he's basically been on the cusp of two different three-hour marathons within the past year, both at Chicago and at London. So we detail both of those attempts, what goes into it, what life is like as a double amputee runner, and why he's a double amputee in the first place. So I hope you like this episode with Brian Reynolds. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to get you on the show. That's for sure. You're somebody who... As I was doing my uh, preparation for the Chicago Marathon, you know, as, as I'm sure you could guess, I, I love following everybody. Hearing about your story was not only was it inspirational, it was like it's really exciting to hear about, but you kind of blew up. All of a sudden, you were, your story was everywhere. What was that like going into the marathon, all of a sudden having a lot of people reach out to you and want to tell, uh, tell you know, your story and what you had going on? Uh, it was definitely a little bit overwhelming at first. It went from almost nothing to it seemed like a hundred miles overnight. <laughs> now, why why was that? Was there any was there any effort on your part to kind of dr- start kind of get the word out? Um, what what caused the start, sudden influx in popularity? Uh, I didn't really do anything myself. The Bank of America, which is one of the major sponsors for the Chicago Marathon, contacted me back in August about um, a short video segment that they wanted to do. So I think that that started the media influx. And then the Chicago Marathon media people kind of started pushing the story. And when they contacted you to do a video, that must have been kind of surreal, right? I mean, it must have been like, wait, what? What do you want to do? Yeah, I didn't understand how big it was at first. They contacted me and said that, they would want to do um, a short video segment um, of where I train at my house. And the next thing I know, they were flying me out to Chicago and we were filming for 14 hours. Holy cow. Now, 14 hours of filming. How, how long did the video end up being? Uh, the social media version was 30 seconds and the long version, <laughs> the long version was about two minutes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So then so you and you film for 14 hours. See, it's funny. Like I'm I'm a podcast guy. I don't do anything with video, so I'm I'm completely naive to all of this. You must have thought it was gonna be like this super long video because of all the time you spent out there. I I had an inclination that it was somehow gonna boil down to something very small. I, I wasn't sure that it was gonna be two minutes, but um <laughs> the amount of cuts that they made me take of each and every clip that they were doing. Uh, gave me a small inclination that they they might be boiling it down to a very small amount. 
Yeah, I can imagine. And then once you got closer to the marathon, I was talking to a friend of yours, and he was saying that all of a sudden you started getting all these requests requests from different magazines and newspapers. And he was laughing. He was like, yeah, he's like, Brian doesn't like follow a lot of this as much as you might think. He was kind of like, yeah, I don't know where, I don't even know who, 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 you know, some of these newspapers are, are even are. And then it was just kind of like, you know, kind of overwhelming in a way. It was very overwhelming for me. I, I think the week leading up to the marathon, you have the, the nervousness and chaos of, of getting ready uh, for a major, a major race, and I'm traveling to that race, and all of a sudden I was getting a dozen different media requests, and I had no clue what most of these, what most of the um, papers or sources were besides Runner's World. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that is definitely the standard bearer. That's for sure. And did it feel like it like hampered? Now you're at this point, you've run a bunch of marathons. So do you feel like it hampered at all? Kind of the, the typical race week for you? Or as a young dad, is it just like living a crazy life? It's just kind of par for the course. Yeah, I don't think it impacted me that much. It was more par for the course. It was just another crazy drop in the bucket each day. Right, because not only are you certainly a very dedicated runner you're a manager at a running shoe store you have your mba you got your m uh, master's in public health as well your husband you got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and you're out there like you know trying to break three hours in the marathon which shoot man that's a lot to balance that's for sure did you ever get the point where just from a time perspective you wonder if this is going to be possible just because you just had those one of those crazy days or weeks where it's just hard to juggle at all I think almost every day, I think that at some point, <laughs> uh, usually the first thing out the window is sleep, unfortunately. Oh, man, I feel the exact same way. I, I, that is absolutely the first thing that goes for me. What What is your typical, I guess, like, say, you know, say over a five-day span, what would be, like, the typical hours per week that you normally get versus, like, what you would, not ideally, because you're never going to get, like, 10 straight hours right but like when you're doing it well how much sleep do you get and when you're kind of burning the candle on both ends what do you tend to get i think in the months leading up to chicago i think my max was about six hours of sleep oh my gosh it would get down as low as three hours now did you ever crash because that happens to me from time to time that i'll i'll get like it won't happen immediately, but over, say, a two to three month period of time, if I don't sleep consistently six or more, it, it, it will inevitably come to come, you know, come to rear its ugly head. But has that ever happened to you? I, I've never fully crashed, but I was definitely injury prone over the summer. I had a quad and hip injury that prevented me from running a lot. And I would say if I got more sleep, that would probably wouldn't it wouldn't have either lasted as long or it wouldn't have happened at all. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's funny how these things can manifest themselves. Like for me, I've never been injury prone because of it, but I'll get these periods where like, I just can't complete runs without walking. Like I'll just like go out for an easy run and then five out, like, you know, five miles in, I'm like, I got to walk even though I'm like going easy, but like, I won't injure myself. I guess in part because I don't ever know if I don't have energy to injure myself. I'm like too fatigued already. Yeah, I've never had that problem. I, I have the problem of I, I can drive myself through hard workouts no matter what's going on in life, which it then comes back to bite me. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. Well, let's talk about life. All right, so you know you are a double amputee runner, and for you, this has just been the way you've lived your life, I guess, assuming for almost as long as you can remember, right? Because when you had, and pardon my pronunciation, I clearly can't pronounce the bacterial infection you have. Do you? Had, do you do you know how to pronounce it? Yes, meningococcemia. That's it. That's it. So you got that at age four. Do you even remember the ordeal at all? I do remember bits and pieces of it. A lot of it I was in a medically induced coma for. So I, I remember okay. more of the recovery stuff afterwards. Got it. And so at that point, you got that bacterial infection. You're in the hospital. And then what about that infection led you to lose both of your legs below the knee. I'd be lying if I said I knew the exact uh, specific modalities that uh, meningococcemia 
causes. My wife is, is more of an expert on that. She's the nurse practitioner. So um, I guess it causes sepsis in the body and the medication that they use to stop that is called vasopressors and that restricts blood flow in the extremities. So a lot of meningococcemia patients are actually quad amputees. So I guess you could say I'm lucky as in it only affected my legs. Wow. All right. So, so is it that it brings kind of, it it restricts the blood flow to the extremities? Yeah, it it brings all the blood flow into the vital parts of the body. So your organs. Wow. Wow. That must've just been wild for your parents. I can't can't even imagine. And especially you or your parent, right? You're, you two kids, you, you've been, you know, a young one, age of three. It must just be so, it must be so odd to kind of like look at your child now at three, one year removed from the age you were uh, when you acquired this and just to like, put yourself in your parents' shoes. I hope that I never have to make that decision. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine the strain that my parents were going through with that decision. All, all three of us, me and my brother and sister were all sick when we were younger. Uh, so I guess they were well versed in it by that point. When my sister was born, she actually had transposition of the great vessels of the heart and had open heart surgery, I think about two weeks into life. So, and my brother was born while I was in the hospital with meningococcemia. <laughs> no way. Um, Holy cow. So my parents' life was definitely stressful when we were younger. <laughs> Oh my goodness. No kidding. That is, well, I don't even know what to say, frankly. Um, that, that, that is, that is wild. Um, but it seems like for all intents and purposes, while you, while you, you know, remember parts of the recovery, you know, you kind of don't remember, it sounds like at least, you know, life with, um, with unamputated legs, just little brief memories, nothing too strong. Okay. So where where did you grow up? Somewhere in Massachusetts? Yeah, a little bit southwest of Boston in Dedham, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. All right. So I live in Rhode Island. So I'm very aware. I've driven through Dedham a bunch of times. It's actually, it's our, that's the, we drive through Dedham when we try to take like the back way into Fedway Park. Oh, okay. Yep. That's a common way to go. <laughs> yeah. So my, my father-in-law has season tickets to the Sox, has had them forever. And that's like, that's like the only way he'll go. For sure. Even if, even if there's traffic backed up there, like, no, this is the way. This is where we get to my parking <laughs> spot. So I know exactly what you mean. So it was funny. When I, when I read about your your life, the, one of the first things that came to my mind was knowing what it's like just like just being around, you know, being around Massachusetts kids my whole life. I, you know, I feel like everyone on my college basketball team was from Massachusetts. Um, they are uh, – pretty frank and harsh with other especially boys with other boys they can be tough so what was it like growing up in mass you know as a double amputee was it was it tough or did it did you get like you know teased or ragged on at all or what was that like just growing up with you know with with this issue i i kind of grew up in a, in a little bubble because i went to a small private catholic school from preschool all the way through eighth grade and then almost all of the boys from that private Catholic school, we all went on to an all-boys private high school. So I, I was kind of in my own little bubble where the, the kids were with me when I got sick. And they, didn't, they never really questioned it or said anything when we were growing up. Um, so wow. any, any bullying was, was more just normal kid stuff as opposed to having to do with my legs. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, certainly, I that, I was not expecting you to say that, but that obviously is a huge benefit to you growing up in that situation. Yeah, I don't think I appreciated it at the time. I just kind of took it as normal every day. I I didn't know anything different. So, right, and the people who aren't from this area, if you have kids in the car, earmuffs. Um, I feel like one of the terms that gets thrown around around here is that you know it's like where well, you often hear the common term of someone's a mass hole. Because they're from Massachusetts, exactly, <laughs> and, they, and they act in that manner, and it's just a common turn of phrase around here. Um, and it's almost like as soon as you say that word, someone knows exactly what you mean. So, well, hey, good for you. I'm glad that you're able to get through without too much of an issue. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm sure there were small comments over the years, but nothing, 
nothing uh, stuck, so it couldn't have been that bad. So you're obviously you're super active now. How active were you as a kid? Uh, moderately active. I was. I kind of did the town sports, the town baseball league, the town basketball league. I did horseback riding for a long time when I was growing up. I think from age eight through about twenty. Um, my mom had me in the gym starting when I was thirteen, so I had a decent amount of exposure growing up. It wasn't until I got to college that I kind of started to get a lot more into athletics. So were you a big fan of sports back then, or did you just grow into that as well? Um, maybe, maybe I liked the idea of sports more than anything else. I didn't really like baseball while I played it, but I always wanted to. <laughs> oh, um, got it. It, it wasn't until I got to college I started powerlifting and getting into heavy weights. That, I, that it really kicked in the sports and athletics. And what made you want to do that? I'm not really sure what st- – I've been lifting since I was 13. I was probably just in the college gym when the football guys were around and decided it was a good time to try lifting heavy weights. Um, okay. it, was, it wasn't so, until my brother started on the high school powerlifting team that I decided I also wanted to be competitive in powerlifting. Oh, okay. So what, um, so I'm, I'm completely naive about the powerlifting scene, especially from an amateur perspective. So what does that entail? Like what exercises and Uh, what does that mean when you're active in powerlifting? It's three, it's the three big lifts. So bench press, deadlift and squat. Um, and they have competitions that encompass all three of these. Uh, I never, and when I you never were... did the squat because of my legs, but I was pretty big with the bench press and deadlift. Oh, okay. And how would the, your deadlift be affected by your prosthetics? Um, my deadlift, I, I was, I was pretty strong with deadlift. It wasn't affected too much. And you've had basically over your course of you know, your life, how old are you? You're 30 years old. Exactly. Yes. All right. So you've seen the full gamut of prosthetics i'm assuming right like what what were they like when you were in middle school and high school uh when i was younger they were a lot different Uh, i'm not sure if the technology wasn't around or if it wasn't readily available to everyone yet but the prosthetics that i had when i was younger in elementary school were just not very good for an active lifestyle um, so now the prosthetics that I wear are a lot lighter, a lot less bulky, and they have a pin locking system on them that keeps my leg far more secure when I'm doing more high intensity activities. When I was younger, it, there was basically a big bulky sleeve that rolled up my leg, um, that held the legs on, which is less secure and it doesn't allow for quite the same range of motion. Yeah, I can imagine. And when is is getting new prosthetics, and maybe this has changed too. Is it one of those things where you can get them, you know, fairly regularly? Or what's the process for getting new ones? Like, is it, you always try to stay on the cusp of like what's new and what the what the advances are? Kind of like how like someone who's into, say, basketball shoes or running shoes are always trying to keep up on what's new. Um, I do get new prosthetics fairly regularly, just because I wear out the ones that that I have, especially the running ones. So I just got new running ones after about somewhere between 10 and 12 months on the other ones, which I put in over 2000 miles on them. So just like a running shoe, the, the running blade wears out. Oh, interesting. So the the blade itself wears out. I always just assumed that the tread at the bottom would be, would be the part that would need to be um, replaced. So I do replace the treads quite frequently. It depends on how much I run, but somewhere around about the 300-mile range, I change out the treads. But the blades themselves lose their spring. Um, I, d- I don't think that there's any set or defined number of miles as to when they lose their spring. Um, maybe because there's not enough amputees really testing their limits yet. But for me, I started feeling like 
it wasn't returning the same amount of energy or spring. Um, after I hit about 2,200 miles, I started feeling like I was just kind of sinking, sinking into the ground with each step. And does it matter if it's like an easy run versus like a harder tempo run or interval workout? I personally use the same legs for both. I'm not sure if there's, well, I know that amputees who are sprinters and run on the track have a different type of blade than I do, but I'm not sure if other amputees would change their running blade for an easy run versus a tempo run. But can you notice the difference? So say, say it's on the cusp of wearing out, right? Like if I have like a running shoe that's on the cusp of wearing out, if I'm just going on an easy run, like maybe like it doesn't matter. So I might be going a little bit long, might, might be going a little bit less. So it doesn't really matter a whole lot, but say if I'm going on, you know, a 14 mile long run or something i might be like all right these are on the cusp of wearing out i'm not going to wear these right now like can you can you notice the difference like that like that little bit of a difference or is it more of like a wholesale change like all right these are these are way past two um for a few months now i've been feeling like the ones that i have kind of feel like i'm just sinking in and not really getting the return like i have to work a lot harder to get the same pace um and I got new ones not, not long before Chicago, and they felt so different on me that I, I couldn't even use them in Chicago. I just didn't have enough time to get used to them. Oh, interesting. So what about them was so different? Um, they were a lot stiffer and springier, and I just my, my body wasn't used to that stiff feeling. And when you say get used to them, like, what does that entail? Like, do you have to start changing your stride at all? Like, what's, what, is, uh, what, what does it actually mean to like, kind of break them in, so to speak? Uh, well, the top part of, the, of the, any prosthetic, the socket where my leg goes, that's something that me and my prosthetist have. Obviously, they take a mold to make the, orig- to make the first socket that you try on, but it, over, over thousands of miles... I've perfected the fit on me by going back to the prosthetist and having them fix spots that might be rubbing or chafing. And I just didn't have enough time to do that with, with these ones before Chicago. So, so I didn't feel comfortable using something that was relatively unknown before a major race. Right. Cause you must've done some trial and error in your life where you've had some pretty nasty like cuts or friction burns from some of these things. Yeah, I've had some really, really bad um, open sores throughout both my running career and life in general. Thankfully, in the past year or so, my legs have leveled out. I'm, I'm with a really good prosthetist out in Long Island, a step ahead prosthetics. And they are just very, very good at, at working with, with me, particularly. Now, how did you find them? Um, it was just by chance. I was researching another amputee. Um, her name is Amy Palmiro, and uh, she's an amazing endurance athlete. And I was trying to figure out how she manages to do all these crazy ultra marathons and Ironman and obstacle course racing and not have problems. Um, I was really new in the running world at that point, and I was having all kinds of chafing and blister problems. And I was tracking her down, and I tracked her to the uh, front door of a step ahead prosthetics. <laughs> so is there a like a, a, like a either online or in-person running community for amputee runners who are trying to achieve things at a high level i haven't found one okay because it seems like it was one of those things where people would have a lot of the same questions especially early on in the process i think that there's just so few amputees that are running distance events that it's still relatively unknown there's a lot of high-level amputees that are doing amazing in the sprinting world, the 400, 200, and 100 meters. But amputees and distance running are still pretty new, at least at a high level. There's a lot of amputees going out and just completing a race. But I know very few amputees that are going out there to competitively run a race. And with your powerlifting background... I'm surprised that you didn't go maybe towards the same the same thing, going to more the the, the sprinter type model. I did try it briefly, but the well, I I don't like the track to begin with. Um, just I'm not a big fan of running in circles. Um, 
and I did try, but I never really got fast enough to compete at an even a national level, let alone an international level. There's some American sprinters that are running the 400 and I think like 46 seconds or faster. So was that a goal very early on that you felt like if you were going to dedicate yourself to a sport that you wanted to be able to compete at the highest level? I've always had a competitive spirit, whether it was um, in base, the local baseball league or powerlifting. So when I started running, I naturally just wanted to run as fast or as hard as I could. Which makes the start of your running career even the, even more amazing. Because I love hearing how back in 2012, how you started running. You're kind of like week by week build up. Tell, tell the people how you started because considering what you just said, it's almost the antithesis of that. Yeah, so um, I, I basically ran one minute a day for a week and then two minutes a day for a week. It probably took me a month and a half to two months to even reach a reach a mile um that i wasn't running with running blades at that point i was running with my everyday legs which are heavier and bulkier so they caused a lot of chafing and blistering um but i i finally got to a mile and it seemed like i had climbed everest with the amount of effort that it took me <laughs> And what made you want to keep going? Like, did you already have goals in mind at that point? Uh, the marathon was always a bucket list item. I just didn't think I'd ever be able to do it competitively. Um, I started running. Well, me and my wife started running together. So it was kind of, we were only friends then, but we would just check in with each other every single day to make sure we did our run. Um, so we motivated each other to keep going and keep getting stronger um but well that's that's certainly a motivating factor especially i mean obviously you were attracted to this woman you end up marrying her so if you're you know if you're gonna be calling a cute girl every night to see if like she ran like you better you know hold up your end of the bargain exactly <laughs> there was a few times where i slacked and i felt terrible then when she called me <laughs> Yeah, because you got to keep it up, man. You can't be, you know, you, a couple of days in a row, you know, and all of a sudden she might be looking for a new running partner. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's great. All right, so this is back in 2012. You're doing the, 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 the week, the day-by-day, week-by-week buildup. Um, and then when did you get to the point where, you know, like a five- to eight-mile run was something that you could do as, like, just a normal run? Like, you just mentioned, like, a mile felt like Everest to you. So when did like, you know, a typical runner's buildup start to feel a little bit more natural? So I never got beyond four or five miles um, in that first year because my legs were just so beat up from running in, in the wrong equipment that I think that, I think that in that first year, the highest I ever got to, was four miles like once or twice a week so you're talking very very low running volume i never crested eight to ten miles in a single week um and then the following year in 2013 in september is when i moved to new, Jer new jersey and i just i happened to stumble across this prosthetic company out in long island um so it it turned into two things one i moved to new jersey so i needed a new prosthetist and two these people said that they these people said they'd be able to make me running legs and it wasn't really until i got my running legs that i finally crested that barrier and things became easier yeah and then what then a year later you ran your first marathon I ran my first marathon in January of 2014, and I got my first set of running legs at the very end of 2013. Oh, so nuts. Oh, wow. Um, so I only had chan a chance to do like one or two runs on them before I ran a marathon. Wow, that must have been. So what gave you the confidence to sign up for the marathon in the first place if you hadn't received the running legs yet? I signed up for the marathon before I moved to New Jersey, so I had intended doing that in my usual everyday walking legs. 
the fact that I moved to New Jersey and got these running legs was just an added bonus. <laughs> but it was just one of those things where I was going to get to the finish line no matter what it took. And I saw in your article, Runner's World, you said that you, you, you basically have a chip on your shoulder in regards to you know, wanting to compete at the highest level and that for you, having that chip on your shoulder is a motivating factor for you. Has it always been there or has it just popped up in regards to certain in that endeavors or initiatives? I think it pops up far more in athletics in general, um, whether it be powerlifting or horseback riding or running. And when you have that pop up, is, do, do you hearken back to specific like moments and you say like, I, you know, there's like revenge on that moment. I remember I, I should have been able to accomplish something and I didn't, or is it just a general chip on your shoulder of like, you know, I'm just not going to be held back. I'm going to achieve what I want. Yeah. It's more just remembering how far I've come and with, in regards to running, especially in such a short amount of time. Um, I only started following a consistent training plan two years ago. So Every time I have a bad workout or a tough race, I just have to remind myself how new I am to this sport. I'll say, man, like going from in two years, going to, you know, right on the cusp of breaking three hours in the marathon is an enormous improvement. That is remarkable. I think a lot of people would take that. That's for sure. Um, have you, during those two years, have you been able to train pretty consistently or have you been hampered by any significant injuries? There has been no consistent training for me, a very unconventional path to the marathon. Um, Let's see, last year in Chicago was probably my first year that I was trying for a more competitive time, and I was having prosthetic issues for the whole summer, trying to get new ones lined up, and um, just having a lot of trouble with my own legs and pressure points. So I didn't run for most of the summer last summer. It was basically all cross training. And I think I started running on Labor Day weekend last year for Chicago and went into the race with no expectations and dropped a 21 minute personal record. Yeah, Um, 306. My goodness. Yeah, which I was ecstatic about. I I didn't think that that was possible. my previous personal record was in Houston earlier in the year, and I ran three hours and 27 minutes. So going into this race with uh, not not the amount of run training I wanted, I didn't have any expectations, but maybe that was a good thing. So uh-huh. what do you think allowed you to have such a drastic improvement considering your unconventional training? I just had a great day that day. It's just, it was one of those days where everything clicked perfectly. It wasn't a cool day or anything. It was it was actually a pretty warm day, but I was just having a great time. I enjoyed the crowds. I enjoyed Chicago. And maybe it was the fact that I felt no pressure. I just ran freely. Um, and then after Chicago, my expectations completely changed. Uh, I it, it became expected that I I would get the sub the sub three hours. I guess going into Chicago last year. I didn't really think too much about it. I just thought about finishing the race. And were you aware that no double double amputee had broken the three-hour mark? Yeah, I, I generally know all the amputees that are ahead of me because there's not that many. So Interesting. And I would assume just because of technological advances that the, a lot of these records probably don't, don't date back that far. No, I, most of them are pretty close within the last few years. Right, because they would just have to be from just a technological standpoint, right? Yeah, I want to say I want to say that the the oldest one that I know about is probably two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine, so not not that old. Okay, got it. Now, have you run in any races alongside another high level double amputee runner? No, I have not something that you would look forward to doing or is it not really you know on your radar um i i would love to and i'll probably have a chance in the future there's um another person his name is marco chisetto he's he's pretty fast too so he'll be running in new york city this year 
Oh, how exciting. Your your backyard. You see, you 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 switched teams, man. You went from Massachusetts to Metro New York area, New Jersey. So you went from you went from uh, Red Sox country to Yankees country. Exactly, but I still wear the Red Sox gear. So <laughs> Patriots more than anything, but oh, good for you, good for you. Now are you in, are you mostly in Giants territory or Jets territory? I really can't figure out what I'm in. Okay. All right. Yeah. My buddy's a teacher in New Jersey and he always rocks the, uh, the new England, the new England sports gear, especially now during the playoff time. Yes. <laughs> I, um, every time I think I have it figured out, they, they seem to change where the jets and the giants begin. I can't figure it out. So. Right. Cause here in new England is basically Hartford, Connecticut. It's like, yes. right? it's like, it's like, it's like interstate 91 and you just like basically like take it down um, down to New Haven, and that's pretty much the line of demarcation between where the Yankees are west of that and east of that is the Red Sox. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so enough Red Sox talk. I can keep talking about it. We're that the playoffs going on. We just tied up the series. I'm feeling good, but um, I'm back to running. All right, so you kicked butt in Chicago. You ran this 306 out of nowhere, and then as you put it, then all of a sudden the sub three mark comes on your radar even more so as in terms of not just on your radar, but like, hey, this is something that, that you might be able to do and on some level are expected to do. So did that change the way you approached your running? Because all of a sudden there's outside expectations on what you may be able to accomplish. Yeah, it definitely changed how I thought about things. Not long after Chicago, I got an invitation to the London Marathon, which is the World Para Championship. Um, so that's when training got really serious. I had been using a coach before Chicago, and with my legs all set, we, we really got into training um, for a true marathon cycle. I did tons of long runs over 20 miles. I don't, I don't even remember how many, but it was more than three or four. I can tell you that much. Um, and I got up to more of a typical marathoners volume. I was, I was right about 70 miles, which coming from somebody who had never broken 50 miles before doing repeated, mi- repeated weeks of mileage at 70 miles was a lot for me. Um, and then I think it was about three weeks out from London. I had emergency gallbladder surgery. Oh, geez. Um, which completely put a wrench in things. Um, the doctors told me that there was nothing I could do training wise that would injure me, which was probably the worst thing to tell me because I basically got off the operating table and went straight back to training. Um, and did it, did it affect you on race day? You know, I thought I was fine, but looking back how I felt over that final month before London, I was just, I was beat up. I was exhausted mentally and physically, and I probably lost a bunch of weight because of the surgery. So I I think that it probably would have done me much better to take at least a few days break, but I, I got off the operating table and I was on my lift to go trainer within two hours. And in that race, did you run with anybody as a pacer? Cause I know you did that in Chicago and we'll talk about that when we, um, when we get there in a second, but, but did you do that in London as well? No, it was the other unfortunate kicker for me in London on top of having surgery, um, for the world para championship, you go off 55 minutes before the elites. So I ran the entire race point to point with absolutely no one in sight. So the, literally the exact opposite experience of every other like Abbott, like major marathon runner. Yep, pretty much. And it's like you see like it was like 440,000 people applied for the London Marathon this year. It would your London Marathon experience you ran completely by yourself. Exactly. I mean, I guess I was lucky. I heard they ran out of water. I didn't run out of water, at least. <laughs> no, you drank it all. You were the first one through. I was busy dumping it over my head because it was extremely <laughs> hot and humid. The exact opposite oh. of what London normally is. All right. So you had emergency gallbladder surgery, and it was a hot day. You ran completely by yourself, and you ran a 303. You must have been, 
you know, once you've like recovered and you know, have the normal like post marathon feelings, I mean, you must have been pretty excited with that time because that's that's a lot. That's a very fast time. I, you know, I was with no with with no asterisks. I was actually pretty disappointed with it. I, I really, I I came into London in shape for probably two fifty or sub two fifty, <laughs> just based on what my long runs were. Um, I just I ran poorly. Um, the clocks on the course didn't match the time that I had started, so I didn't know what my I didn't know what times I was running and. I let myself get beat mentally. I, I felt like I was running poorly. I felt like I was running bad times. So I started walking through the water stops because I said, why, why bother beating up my body for a poor time? But in all reality, I came through the half at 125. I was right on pace. <laughs> um, so so I, after I was, you got... Sorry, go ahead. No, so so were you aware of the time? No. The, so you said before that you didn't have the you didn't have the splits. So you found out after the fact that you came through the half at one twenty five. Yeah, I saw my splits after the race. Oh my goodness! So I I was more mad at myself for for being beat mentally than than the way I ran. I, I started walking through the water stops because I let myself get mentally beaten. That's interesting because you you'd done so much training up to that point. It's it's um are you surprised in retrospect that you were so um disconnected from what your paces actually were? I was just so used to using a Garmin watch and for the World Para athletes we weren't um allowed to use GPS watches so I just didn't know what my splits were. <laughs> Got it. Got it. See, it's, it's, it's another example that sometimes we need to ditch our garments on occasion. Yeah, I, you know, I don't even stare at it much in training. I use it more for a mileage tracker than anything. I'm not, I, in fact, a lot of times I run with it in my pocket so that I don't stare at it. But um, I think it was just a culmination of everything together between the gallbladder surgery, the heat of the day, running by myself. It, it all added up to me just letting myself get beat mentally. And it's, and it's a great indicator of like how success or failure, at least per- perceived success or failure is so much in the eye of the, of the beholder, right? In 2017, Chicago, you run a 306 and it's this glorious, wonderful day where everything was perfect. And then, you know, in London, you run three minutes faster a couple weeks after a major surgery and it's this huge disappointment and it, it, it really is it shows how like even as, as athletes it can how things can change so quickly and then it's all relative to where we think we are in the, in the current moment yeah it's so true I went into that race thinking that I would smash three hours that my training had gone so well but it's one of those uh, times where the marathon can humble you. It doesn't matter how well you trained. It doesn't matter of anything else. Just sometimes the uh, marathon can just crush you. <laughs> and speaking of training, it sounds like when I was reading the article in Runner's World that you train that you altered your training a little bit, getting you ready for this year's Chicago in terms of how much time you spent on your elliptigo versus how much time you spent doing your uh, your running workouts oh, i didn't have much choice i i was uh pretty beaten after london and i tried i i took a few weeks off but then i tried to jump right back into marathon training and promptly got injured um in the first week of training for london i i ignored that injury and kept training for london and about two weeks later i could barely walk um and what so injury was that i had some sort of hip quad injury um, which probably could have been solved when I, when I first felt it acting up, I, I probably should have taken a bit of break then and it wouldn't have been a big deal. The fact that I kept trying to hammer through hard workouts and long runs, uh, made it an injury that lasted somewhere six to seven weeks. So I, I ended up not running at all for most of July and August and instead pushing myself through suicidal amounts of cross training on my elliptigo. Now is that the elliptigos that can that kind of like go along the streets or yes. is that more okay. Yeah. 
you know, how how are those? Do those go pretty fast? What's like this? What's the speed compared to going out for a run? I think I average about fifteen and a half to sixteen and a half miles an hour. Oh, so it's almost equivalent of a bike. It's definitely a bit slower than a bike. You're not going to break 20 miles an hour or anything. But Well, I don't break 20 miles on a bike anyway, Brian. So, I mean, for me, this is all the same. <laughs> yeah, so you, you're definitely faster than running. But it mimics a running – it mimics the same muscles that running uses. So I was able to keep keep strong in the legs and in the core. And I'm assuming, especially if you live in an area where you can utilize these things, it must just be so much better than hopping on the elliptical in the gym. Oh, yeah, way better. <laughs> now, are you able to just go like along your same running routes, or do you need to kind of like find like a bike path to utilize the thing? I'm lucky that I live pretty close to a really good park. So there's, there's about a two-mile loop around the outer part of the park. Okay, so here you are. You were avoiding track the whole time because you didn't want to go around circles, and here you are going around in circles. <laughs> At least it's a bigger circle. <laughs> Although, to be honest, I would take it on the track when the track was not was not busy. I would do track workouts with it. Oh, wow. Oh, that's definitely different. So you must, you must just be a pro at this thing now in terms of like trying to figure out the kind of times you would need to mimic um, – you know, a certain running pace or running effort. I still haven't gotten that down. I just know that if I was supposed to run for 90 minutes, I would double it on the elliptigo. Also, you were putting in some serious time then. Considering, uh, Yeah, probably about three hours a day on, during the week. Wow. So when do you do that? Like we've already talked about, it. you're a busy guy. When are you able to get those workouts done? Um, depends on the day. Some, most days I'm up at 4am, so I get a few hours in before the kids get up. Um, and then I'll come home after work, get them in bed and get in another second or third or fourth workout of the day. Oh, see me and you, we're in the 4am club. Yeah, I do. I do the same thing. It's definitely, it's like pre pre kids waking up. I'd be like happier if I was in the 5am club, but <laughs> I can imagine. Probably a lot less injured, too, as you said. Yeah, so I, I spent most of my summer doing the elliptigo or a road bike or weight training in the gym. I never gave up my old powerlifting routes, so I'm still in the gym often. Um, it wasn't until, again, September that I was able to start running again. Um, and... Given the fact that I was having trouble with volume, I basically just went for three intense workouts a day, no easy runs, no recovery runs. Do you mean three intense workouts a week? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I thought I said that. No, you, um, you said three a day. I almost like dropped the phone. Oh, no, no. <laughs> That'd be amazing. No, three <laughs> intense workouts a week. I would just do like a speed, a speed workout, a tempo workout, and a long run with a workout in it. Okay, and, yeah. And then just kept filtering in the same amount of elliptigo. Um, instead of doing easy runs, I would just do the elliptigo. Um, so I, I had maybe five weeks of running leading into the Chicago. And oddly, I was more confident going into this Chicago than I was going into London. Were you just having like really, really good... Um running sessions or was it a different I was reason? having amazingly good running sessions which didn't make sense given the fact that I hadn't run in 6 or 7 weeks but my my first week back I did a half marathon just to see where I was at um and, man you are crazy you ran a half marathon the first week back yeah i ran two intense workouts during the week and then i was like okay there's a local half i'll just see how i do and i ran 124 in it so i i was really confident about my fitness Man, this is like, this was not designed to be a commercial for Elliptigo, but it seems like that thing really works because obviously you were yes. in a pretty, a pretty good fitness spot to be able to do that, to run an untapered uh, 124 and a half. Yes. I mean, Elliptigo probably comprised 80% of my training. I was still biking and swimming and weight training as well. But And that's the point too, right? Because there's plenty of people who do triathlons, who are excellent marathoners. And 
you know, they basically stick to a very similar routine that you did, right? They do three hard running, three hard running workouts a week. They lift weight and you're on the elliptical. They might be on the bike, you know, or, and, or doing swims, but it's kind of the same routine in a way. And a lot of these high level marathon, high level, uh, say Ironmen, iron women and triathletes in general can go out there and crush long distance runs along the same sort of plan. Exactly. And I, I think that going into London back in the spring, I let those roots die out instead of continuing with them. So even though I was stronger running, I think I was weaker overall because I did not keep going with what I have been doing my entire life. Oh, interesting. All right. So going into the marathon, say it's race day, you're ready to roll. Um, what was the plan going into the race? Uh, this year, I was lucky enough to have three excellent pacers with me, uh, one of which is Mike Wardian, who's pretty well known in the running world. Such a legend. So mm-hmm. I, I, I called you crazy earlier. Um, that's an insult to Mike Wardian because he oh, actually yeah. is crazy. I, I have never seen anybody run the amount of volume that he does at the speed that he does it. He he ran he paced me in the marathon, but the week before he ran a marathon at Gillette Stadium actually and won that. And just this weekend he was in Poland doing a hundred and fifty K race. I've seen him win marathons on consecutive days. Yeah, it's insane. And he just got back from Poland, but he has marathons booked for the next five weeks in a row. Um And he and he works. Yes, he's he does. Like, he has... He's not a professional runner. He's guy works full time. Oh, he's both a professional runner and a professional. He has a professional job as well. You're right. You're right. Thank you for correcting me because he definitely is a professional runner. But yeah, the the point stands. Like this guy is, you know, he's not just like, you know, napping the rest of the day. Which even if he was, it would still be an extraordinary achievement. Yeah, he's he's insane. Um, <laughs> it was it was a really good time leading up to Chicago, just getting to know him. But on the starting line, I, I had three wonderful pacers. One was also my pacer last year in Chicago. He came back to join me this year. Um, and then I had a new guy who is the cross-country coach for a local college in Chicago. Was this um, Elmhurst? Yeah, for Elmhurst, yes. So how did you get to know him? Um, the Chicago Marathon um, Athletes with Disabilities director – um set me up with him and and the same pacer phil from last year was set up by them mike wardian um was set up by actually elliptigo (laughs) go elliptigo that's nice um yeah so at the starting line the plan was just uh 645s all the way through mile 20 and then whatever i had left give it (laughs) Now, what is what is six? Say you did six forty five pace for the entire race. What does that equate to? I think it's around a two fifty six. Okay, all right. So, so I, I was giving myself room if I didn't feel amazing in in the last ten k, which can happen in a marathon for sure, <laughs> or just does happen in a marathon. Yeah, <laughs> every I, single time. Um, I was lucky last year. I negative split Chicago. Oh. Good. That's great. Well, and, and obviously part of that too, is just, it's not only like, all right, the last 10 K is going to be hard just because it's, you know, you've already run 20 miles, but if you have the, the mental, the mental wherewithal plus the, the, the crazy fitness, you definitely can do it. I'm not saying people will fall apart in the last 10, 10 K, but it's always going to be a grind. Yeah. So you, you get, so you, you get that started, you do the six forty five. You had said going into London, weren't necessarily as confident that you still thought you were in like 250 shape going into London. So did you feel at all going to Chicago with this 645 per mile race plan that at some point that you're going to start to increase the pace? Yeah, I, I was feeling really confident. Um, it was a cool day. It was cloudy day. I don't mind intermittent drizzle at all. So um, to me, it was a, it was a sub three day. All right. So how did the first 20 miles go for you? Uh, They went perfectly to plan. If anything, we were a little bit fast. Um, I think we came through the half at 128 and 
then there was a few fast miles after that down in the 620 range. I had to kind of rein myself back in, re- remain calm. Um, the my three pacers did a great job at that. You know, it was it was hard not to get caught up in the flow when first the elite men passed us and then the elite women passed us, and all of a sudden you find yourself going far faster than you should. Uh, oh yeah, and that's not even because you you are doing it consciously, right? You just get swept up in the moment. No, it's just it's exciting to see them go past. <laughs> um, it it was definitely not a conscious thing. I wasn't trying to run with them, of course, but um, you know, there's little bursts then throughout throughout the race like that when a group of uh, runners comes past you and they're all just going a bit faster. You all of a sudden. 645 isn't a hugely challenging pace for me. So all of a sudden I'd find myself latching onto the back of their group. Yeah. It's, it's why doing long runs with group settings is, can be such a benefit. Yeah. So it was, it was uh, the three guys constantly reminding me that, um, you know, conserve that effort. You're going to need it in the last 10 K. All right. So let's talk about the last 10 K. Yeah, so, I mean, I was definitely feeling fatigued at mile 21, but nothing nothing unexpected. I had just started taking uh, more caffeinated-type goos and honey stingers and stuff like that, so I was expecting them to kick in momentarily. I was, I was coming around to turn right around mile 22, and unfortunately my, my right leg or my right blade got stuck in a pothole and um wasn't expecting it I, you know maybe not feeling amazing because you've just run 21 miles uh so i wasn't paying attention didn't see it my right leg got caught in that pothole and came not fully off but it came partially off so as i as i reached down to grab it i just i fell uh hit the hit the left side of my head pretty hard the uh the entire world went black for a few moments there <laughs> Holy cow. And then when you came to, what was that like? What was that? You have, to, you have people around you at that moment. Yeah. I, then, I came, were I came you aware of what was, happened right away? Yeah, I knew I had fell. I knew when I was falling that this wasn't going to be good because I was grabbing my right leg with my hands. So I just didn't have any way to, to brace my fall. Um, my My residual limb is pretty sensitive. So I figured if the leg came off and... I fell on that, I'd be in a world of trouble. Um, mm-hmm. So my my arms were protecting my leg and holding it on, so I, I didn't brace myself. Um, definitely blacked out for a moment or two, but I came to with, with uh, my pacers lifting me off the ground, maybe a few of the other runners as well, because I, I think I caused a little bit of a pile-up going around that turn. Um, but very dizzy for a few moments uh couldn't really see straight my hearing kept going in and out but i kind of just mechanically pulled on my leg and started uh i don't even know if i can call it walking (laughs) but i started moving forward lurching and uh i looked up at mike at that point so i don't feel good mike i need i need water and he said the next station's right up ahead i'm gonna run up ahead and and grab you something you just keep moving forward as best you can and i'll find you and unfortunately just because there were so many runners going past us at that point we never saw mike again so it was just down to me and my final pacer jim who is the uh head coach at elmhurst and it was basically i i lurched forward walking for a little while it turned into a run I ran for about a mile and then I had to stop at mile 23 and walk for a few moments. And then I made it to 24 miles and had to walk for a few moments. But that was pretty much the last time I walked. I made it from mile 24 to the finish without stopping. Um, But that was the most brutal grind or battle I've ever been in my life as far as running. I, I had to hold on to Jim's arm for quite a bit of it. I just I was having trouble staying upright. And what were your emotions during those four miles? Just get to the finish line. Uh, do not finishes or uh, a not finishes is, is not something I would ever do. 
if I can keep moving forward. So, so like, were you, were you angry? Were you upset? Were you just, were you nervous because you realized that maybe you had a concussion? Like, what, what were some of the thoughts that you had when you were trying to like, when you were just completely in the moment and you were kind of taking a broader, more meta picture of what was happening? I, I knew that the sub three goal at that point was, was slipping well out of my grasp. But there was there wasn't much I could do about it. I just kept focusing on each landmark and forcing myself to run as far as that and then finding the next landmark and running to that. My my whole body was cramping at that point and I was extremely dizzy. So I, I don't think that it was uh, necessarily any thought about being angry or disappointed right then. <laughs> right. And Obviously, with London and then with Chicago in 2018, it's like two very fluky things happened to kind of cause you to not reach your goal. But on some level, you know, it's like it's like I'm, I'm like proud for you that you have certainly put in the training. In order to goal. So it just almost feels like a matter of of when, not if it's going to happen on some level. Yeah, it's funny. I was disappointed after. London but after Chicago I was just happy I finished (laughs) it didn't matter that I didn't even come close to reaching my goal for somehow I still managed to get a 13 second PR which makes it a new American record for amputees hey hey. um but it's just it was two completely different emotions you know after the doctors checked checked me and I went through medical and I got changed and I started to feel better I was just happy I finished at that point so completely different emotions from earlier this year. Right. No, certainly. And were you, was that like a point of pride for you that you were able to stick it out? Oh, 100%. The The medical personnel were shocked that I managed to run the rest of the way. They said, how did you get here? And I said, I ran. And they said, but I thought the concussion or your fall happened miles ago. I was like, it did. I, I still got up and ran. <laughs> Interesting. It's funny. I was actually talking, so I work in the athletic department here in Rhode Island at a, at a local university. And I was talking to our head athletic trainer and I was telling him your story. And I was like, how, because I'm, you know, concussions and just the talk of concussions is very much in the news and has been now for a couple of years. And I asked, like, is this, is this typical? Like if you were say on the course, you would witness that, what, what would be the feeling and it was just one of those things where it's kind of like, well, you know, if he can get on his feet and he has this big goal, you just kind of hold your breath a little bit and you monitor and you basically say, like, once you cross the finish line, you're mine. Yeah, um, it was it was funny going Chicago really only has one hill, which is right in that final half mile for some cruel reason. Um, and my body was really seizing up then. So I, I was holding gym pretty heavily, but I turned the, I turned the corner and you see the finish line. And all of a sudden my body was like, it's great. It's fine. I don't need to hold on to anybody. <laughs> oh my goodness. The finish line feeling, right? It's like the, it's yeah. the weirdest thing in the world. It literally makes no sense. I mean, I crossed the finish line and promptly sat down basically on the time mats, but <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it was the second time that, right? You want to sit on the first one. You don't know if you're going to be officially, officially stopped at that point. No, no, it was definitely the second one. It was right after the second one. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been a fascinating conversation. You're so much fun to talk to. Um, to hit you up with a couple questions like I do at the end of every episode. Um, when you're going out for a run, are you wearing headphones or no headphones? 99% of the time, no headphones. Okay. So that other 1%, what are you listening to? Uh, it depends on the day. Um, my family is, has a lot of Irish musicians in it. So if I listen to music, it tends to be Irish music. I just like the beat. Okay. All right. And what is some running advice that you'd like to give other people, but that you have trouble following? Take your easy days actually easy. (laughs) This is like the 99% answer for everybody. It's hysterical. It's so true. Uh, uh, I can be so bad at it some days. And is it different when you're on the elliptical than if you're actually doing an easy run? Because the elliptical doesn't have some of the... um, some of the punishing aspects of a run, like you're not, obviously you don't have like the, you're not having the impact that you would have 
Um, you don't have the normally. impact, but you can definitely feel sore muscles from previous workouts. So on the elliptical, I would divide it by which workout in the day I was on. <laughs> um, like my first workout, I'd take pretty hard. And then the second workout, I would take easier. Okay. So if you could do one more race for the rest of your life, but you could do it every year, what race would that be? Huh, that's a difficult one. I, I don't really race that much. Um, for marathons, I would have to say Chicago. Okay. And for half marathons, I really love the New Jersey Long Branch half. I've done it several times. Okay, what about that one is so good? It was the first half marathon I ever ran, and I had a really great day there. <laughs> um, that works. It's a really good course. I went back there a uh, second uh, second year and i had another great day there um it's just a beautiful course it's flat and then nothing feels better than just the success of doing it right once you have that you're like all right this is gonna work exactly you have the confidence for you know you can always harken back to when you ran really well on a different day and then it just kind of can pick you up because as you know a lot of this is just mental so if you have good you know good mental framework already i think that's why i was so, so much com- easier. i think that's why i was so confident going into chicago this year I had such a good day last year that my body and mind just remembers that. Right. No, absolutely. All right. Other end of the spectrum. What's a bucket list race for you? A bucket list race. Well, I, I definitely want to complete all the world majors, but my, my dream race has actually been the Badwater 135. <laughs> oh, holy cow. <laughs> that, that's been my dream race since long before I could run. <laughs> So you got to get Wardy in on your crew for that one, too. Exactly. I need a lot of people on my crew for that one. Yeah, that's for sure. No offense. I will not be on the crew. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I, I will read about it after the fact. I can't even convince my family that that would be a good thing to crew. So I hear you. I hear them. Um, all right. Last one. Who's your dream running partner? My dream running partner. Hmm. I've never I've never thought of that one before. I would love to go for a run with um, Kipchoge, but I think a lot of people would. Well, of course, I mean, he's one. He's one of, if not the best ever. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I had, I had the opportunity to meet him a few times in London. So, um, I would love to go for runs with him in addition to just meeting him. <laughs> wow, well, good for you to even meet him in the first place, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great night. Bye. Thank you, Brian, for coming on the show and just sharing so much about your inspiring life and athletic career. This was great. Um, This podcast, as well as the one previous with Holly, just I don't know how you could ever listen to these and not just be inspired to overcome whatever ails you because both Brian and Holly have just recently They've overcome so much. So if you listen to these and you're not inspired to go and just kick some butt and shoot, you need to look in the mirror, man, because these people are doing amazing things and overcoming hurdles that I know I've never had to overcome. And you may not have to, you may not have had to overcome them either. And if you are overcoming them, shoot, shoot me an email and we'll get you on the show too. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for Megaton Coffee for fueling the Rambling Runner podcast. Big ups to run for PRs. They're changing lives as well. So get a coach, a good one. If you want a good one, go to Run for PR's Coaching. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it, and happy running.